0: Welcome to the River City Church Podcast. Our prayer is that this message would inspire and encourage you, build your faith, and point you to the life changing love of Jesus. May you enjoy the goodness of God as you follow him today. Good morning. My name is Jason Casey, member here with you at River City Church and part of the teaching team, and I'm super stoked to be able to be with you on the front end of this new series that we're doing. Before we get into it, we want to start with our confession. and You know what it is, badly broken, deeply loved, don't say it yet. I think it's important because of the topic today, talking about identity, true and false identity, that we spend a second and, and talk about what it means. So our hope, when you walk in, if you're visiting for the first time and you don't have any relationship with Christ, you, you, you're here and you're kind of checking it out, our hope is that when you hear a room full of adults say, we're badly broken, that you'd be like, oh, I found my people. I'm in good company, right? So we, we want you to feel like you're in good company because we're all badly broken. If you've been walking with Jesus for years, if you're like my age, like old or older, and you, you, you know... The, It's important that we remember why we say badly broken. Without Christ, we are badly broken. We would be a wreck, destined for an eternity without the Father. But we also know that there's a dynamic that every day I get up and moment by moment, there's a putting off of the old self and a putting on of the new. We know we constantly miss the mark of perfection. So we are badly broken. Deeply loved is true of everyone. We are loved by a Father who would leave the 99 and pursue us a father who's looking out for us and ready to run and welcome us home with arms wide open. So we're, those both are true. And the, the crazy thing is there will come a moment if the story is true and heaven comes down to earth and we find ourselves in the new heaven and the new earth for all eternity, there's going to be a new confession. And I love this thought that Jesus will lead us in the new confession and it's simply that we're deeply loved. But until then, our confession is, let's say it together, you're badly broken, you're deeply loved, yes, we are. So um, last week, Aaron teed up this series uh, called No Other really, really well, and if you haven't heard it, I really recommend you go back and listen to it, but he used this metaphor where he was at the Houston Astros game, right, game seven, momentous occasion, and he was looking around, and everyone was capturing this moment through a three-by-five piece of metal and glass. Right? And use the idea that everyone is seeing this history, this moment in history through a phone as a way to get us to think about the way idols capture our attention. Right? Like this moment that you could tell everybody that you were there to experience it, you saw it through this lens. Right? Like God intends great things for you, He intends this beautiful life to the full. He made you in His own image, He's given you a stewardship. He's giving you this life to live, to redeem and restore all things, and to live a completely different life. And we're like, yeah, I just want sex. I just want power and control. I just, I just want to make sure I can pay the bills. Like we settle for so much less when the vision of life that he gives us is something completely different. So Aaron did a great job teeing it up. And so the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at different things that can capture our heart. Almost always good things, things that the Father gives us that we say, I want to elevate this above you, right? We kind of kick him off the throne and we put this thing on the throne instead. So this morning we're looking at the concept of identity and how a false understanding of who we are can actually put itself on the throne and not what God says about us. Okay. 25 years ago my wife Heather and I were heading to the mission field. We were going to be missionaries in Italy and we were at the headquarters in Louisville, Kentucky of this mission. And we were in a room full of 20 to 30 other bright-eyed bushy-tailed mission recruits that were going to go out and change the world. And they brought this speaker in. His name was Dan Fogelback, and he gave us each this blank sheet of paper and he asked yes each to draw a picture that represents why we're going to the field okay so i want you to draw something that indicates what you hope to accomplish on the field so we all started drawing you know crosses and church buildings and people holding hands and whatever and he was walking around looking at the picture and when he got done he got back up in front of us and he said you're all wrong and i'm like a 24 year old i just raised $100,000 $100,000 to go to the field. I put a team together. We're going to go change the world. We're going to fill a state. I'm like, what are you talking about? You're wrong. I know what I'm going to the field for. I say, you're all wrong. The only reason you're going to the field is to be conformed into the image of Jesus. And I broke myself for 11 years in Italy trying to prove him wrong. The only reason you're going to the, to the mission field is to, be, is to be conformed into the image of Jesus. The only reason we're in ministry is to be conformed into the image of Jesus. The only reason we exist, the only reason we work and parent, the only reason we breathe is to be conformed into the image of Jesus. First John 2.6, John writes, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Doesn't mean we have to move to Israel and put on a robe and walk around in sandals, but our life has to look like Jesus. And if it's not increasingly looking like the way he lived, the way he loved, the way he spoke, and we got something wrong. And today I would contend that we are believing something wrong. So, this is my prop. I, I love having visuals, I think it's important. And, and I want you to see this is a mirror with all kinds of name tags, right? And it's got all kinds of, hello, my name is dirty and unloved and hopeless and condemned and unsafe. And the, the idea is we come to the, to the mirror and we look in the mirror And when we should see someone created in the very image of God, someone created and designed specifically to reflect glory, someone in Scripture that's compared like with the angels, like when God created us, He said it is very good. Instead of seeing what He sees, we kind of cobble together this construct, right? Right? And so we kind, of, we kind of see glimpses maybe, but really what we see is, is something false. I've been, uh, <clears throat> I've been listening to this guy named Jim Wilder, reading and, and listening to him. He's a neurotheologian. That's a new word for me too. And it's someone who studies the intersection of neurology or brain science and theology. Like total smart guy. He was working with Dallas Willard, another really well-known theologian, before Dallas died recently, a few years ago, and they were working on this concept of salvation as a new kind of attachment. In other words, it's so easy for us to think, if I say this little prayer, I get saved, and then I'm fine, you know, go to heaven someday, right? Like, we we reduce salvation down to this little thing, but they were reading through Scripture and, and realizing that the way Scripture describes salvation is actually a new kind of attachment, and they use the analogy of a baby goose, which is called a... Right, and immediately my wife starts thinking of Ryan Gosling whenever I talk about that. But stay focused, when they were talking about a baby goose, it hatches out of the egg, and what does a baby goose do, what does a Gosling do? It looks for something to attach to. It looks for the older, wiser goose to attach to, because it doesn't know how to live, and so it knows it needs to attach to a model to learn how to live and survive And thrive. So they were exploring this idea. And I was listening to Jim talk in an interview, and he threw out this this image that it was like it blew me away. He said the human mind has a loop that runs in the background constantly. Okay? Six times per second, it's running constantly. And it's answering the question: who am I? 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 Six times per second, it's answering the question. Who am I, who am I, who am I, who am I, who am I? So you sitting there, me up here, no matter working, we're answering the question, who am I, who am I in this moment? Who am I a part of, who do I belong to? How do my people answer this question or face a situation? Six times per second, who am I, who am I, who am I? That's a captivating question, especially when we're talking about identity because how do we answer that question? How do we fill in this construct of who we are, why we're here? I would suggest there are three primary ways. The first one is we are immersed in a world that is bombarding us with messaging, constant messaging. 7,000 marketing and advertising messages a day on average, 7,000. 147 minutes on social media, the average person a day. Forbes did a study recently, it's more like three, three and a half hours for Americans. Three hours a day on social media, and I'm guilty streaming all kinds of things, playing online video games and podcasts and audiobooks, let alone the old, old school media, right? We're just bombarded with images and messages that tell us how to answer the question. So we're immersed in a world that wants to help us answer the question. And in a world and a culture, especially here, that says, oh, you can be whatever you want to be. Literally, you can be whatever you want to be. But we know that's not true. But we do it anyway, we cobble together this construct. So we're immersed in a world. Second thing is trauma. Trauma informs identity. When we experience trauma, and and my trauma is unique to me just like yours is to you, and we, we really can't compare trauma to trauma, we all experience things in life, things that shouldn't have happened that did, or things that should have happened that didn't, things that should have been said that weren't said, or things, or vice versa. We all experience trauma. And when you're young especially, and you experience trauma, we almost always end up believing something that's not true about ourselves. And it almost always lies dormant and we don't realize it, sometimes ever. Trauma is one of the ways that we answer the question, who am I, who am I, who am I, who am I, who am I? The third is this. We believe there's an enemy who has a strategy. We see it from the very beginning of the story. In the garden, an enemy who said, Did God really say that? Did he really mean that? Is this really who God is? Is this really who you are? In 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul writes that in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Peter describes him as a lion that is roaming around looking for someone to devour. He wants to distract, deceive, destroy. The enemy is very content for you to live a happy life as long as it's this false construct, because he's terrified of what would happen if you figure out what's really true about you, right? So lots of sources that we get answers to this question, six times per second, who am I, who am I, who am I? So what does it look like when we live out of a false identity? Because I would contend that most of us are. Most of us, as Christians, are are not living out of what's true about us. So what does it look like? Well, if I'm living out of a false identity, then I'm going to self-protect and self-promote. And those are terms that Jamie Winship uses to describe how we show up in the world when we're living out of a false identity. God can't work with what's false. He can only work with what's true. So we continue to ask for more of him. We wanna know him. But if we're living out of something that's false, we're limiting what he can do. And so we self-protect and self-promote. It's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They hid in shame because they didn't know anymore who they were. So if I'm coming to you self-protecting and self-promoting, I can't, I can't truly love you or be in a relationship with you fully. I can't bring my full self because I'm constantly coming to you as a consumer. I need you to validate and affirm who I am because I, I need someone to may help me make sense of this, of, this, of this thing, this thing that I put together. So I need you to validate and affirm I'm a consumer rather than someone who can just come and love you, someone who can come and just serve you wholeheartedly. Is it any wonder then that our marriages are struggling? Is it any wonder that, that relationships all around us, that anxiety is high and that our culture is entrenched, polarized? Because we don't know how to have a relationship. We don't know how to love. Think about how much investment Jason has made in the last few weeks, talking about loving your neighbor, loving your neighbor. neighbor. I would contend if we don't know who we are, we can't love the way the Father wants us to love. Because we're not accepting his love the way he wants us to accept it. So, we are going to look through the life of Jesus. There has to be a better way. There has to be a better way. We have to attach ourselves to someone better. So we're going to look through the life of Jesus very briefly. I'm going to go all the way through it, through the lens of identity, okay? Because here's the deal. Was Jesus fully human? He was. Fully human. Fully God, but he was fully human. If Jesus in his humanity, fully human, had a human mind... Then that loop is running in the background. Who am I? 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 And by looking at the example of Jesus, I believe we can learn something today that's really important. So we start in the beginning. We start in the birth narratives. And the father reveals through angels to Joseph and Mary, this child who's going to be born to you is my son, and he's the savior of Israel. He reveals through angels to the shepherds, this child that is born is going to be the salvation of Israel. He reveals through stars to these magi who come to worship this child who's the king of the Jews. He reveals to Zechariah in the temple that Elizabeth's son would be the cousin of the, and he would prepare the way for the one who would save Israel. He reveals to Simeon in the temple that you will not die until you see the salvation of Israel. So when he holds baby Jesus, he says, now I can go because I've seen you kept your word, I've seen. Like, he, he reveals in all these different ways to the people that would be seemingly random, these people that would make up the, uh, the people around Jesus when he was an infant and a toddler and a little boy. Why would the father need to do that? Why would the father need to go out of his way to reveal to seemingly strangers, people not necessarily connected about who this, this baby that was born, who he was? Why, why would he need to do that? I would contend that again, as a baby boy who's answering the question, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? He needed to be surrounded with people who would time and time again tell him the stories. You are the Son of God. Can't explain it. It's a miracle. You're the Son of God. You are the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. We see by the age of 12, he's in the temple. Joseph and Mary couldn't find him. Can you even imagine? Going back, they find him in the temple, and he's teaching, and he already knows who he is. He already knows his identity. And we get to his baptism, and he's coming down to be baptized by his cousin John. And John sees him coming, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. He affirms his identity. And they argue, and John gives in and baptizes Jesus. Jesus comes up out of the water. And I love how Luke, Mark and Luke capture it and says, The voice of the Father in heaven spoke and said, You are my Son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Why would Jesus need to hear that? If not, being fully human, needing to be reminded, Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? You are my Son. Right? Matthew says, Immediately after the Spirit led him into the wilderness, and he was tempted by Satan. Forty days and forty nights, and what was all the temptation about? If you really are the Son of God, right? If you really are the Son of God. And the third one is almost like a, well, since you say you're the Son of God, bow down to me. Identity, identity, identity. And then we zoom through his ministry, right? His own brothers question his identity. The people he heals question his identity. The scribes and Pharisees question his identity. His own followers question, and in some cases reject, his identity. And we come to this passage in Matthew 16, and this really is the core, I think, of what we need to take away today. This this passage in Matthew 16, where Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples about identity. And he says, who do you say that I am? And I love Simon's answer, the impetuous one. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And listen to what Jesus responds. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. No other source for us to go to to find out who we are than the Father. No other source. No other source for us to go to to find out who we are than the Father. And Jesus shows us that. So we zoom past and we get to the last week of his life. We get to the night he's betrayed. He's in the garden and he's crying out to, he says, Father, is there any other way? Because I don't want to do this. Is there any other way? He knows what's coming. And it doesn't say it explicitly, but there's, there's a wrestling there with truly choosing to live out of what's true about him. Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? If I am the son, if I am the Messiah, then I have to do this. He's betrayed by Judas moments later, Judas who, who did not agree with how Jesus was living out of his identity. I, don't, I want you to be the king. I want you to come in and rescue Israel. You're not doing it my way, and he rejects his identity. He's handed over to the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin questions his identity and his authority. They mock him and mock his identity. He's handed over to Pilate, and they have this conversation about identity. He's handed over to the Roman soldiers who put a crown on his head and a robe on his shoulders, mocking his identity. Nailed to a cross, a plaque set above his head, mocking his identity. The passersby, almost as if they're reading a script from Satan If you really are the son of God, you could come off that cross. The very thief, rebel, crucified next to him, mocking his identity. And then we get this heart-wrenching moment. At the end of his life, one of the last things recorded before he dies, and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what is he doing? He's just going back to Psalm 22. He's immersed himself in what's true so that he knows how to live out of what's true. And the story would be sad if it ended there, but it doesn't. It would be sad for us if he didn't do it, but it's good news for us. You see, he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the sun he loves. He's rescued us and freed us so that we can live out of what's true. And that's when we get at it. So how do, how do we do this, right? It ha- this has to be practical. And, and this comes out of my own story, and so I'm just going to share some Uh, a couple of things with you, I think, on how we go about this, how we stop living out of this and begin taking these off and truly seeing who the Father made us to be. Because we, if we're supposed to go out and change the world and redeem and restore every relationship, if we're supposed to steward the things the Father's placed under our care, we can't do it if we're living out of the false We can't do it if we're constantly needing validation and affirmation from each other. If we're self-protecting, self-promoting, we can't do it. You have to be able to be clear, to be able to stand in what's true, not caring what the world thinks, and offer love genuinely, deeply, wholeheartedly. So there are two, two steps, two steps involved that I want to talk to you about. First is identifying and confessing what's false, we have to identify and confess what we're believing about ourselves that's false. And I know initially that might seem like, uh, how do you, what does that even mean? Like Jason, what are you talking about? We do this exercise, I'm involved with a coaching group in San Antonio, and we do this exercise with executives and they're believers, unbelievers, it doesn't matter. We do this exercise where we take a piece of paper, fold it in half, and we ask them to write down what are the names that you call yourself when you make a mistake. What are the names you call yourself when you do something stupid? What are the things that you're believing about yourself that aren't true? And and quickly, they start to write down a list of things they're believing about themselves that aren't true, and then we have them flip it over and say, okay, what's true about yourself? This is something we do in our business coaching, and it's amazing to me how often we encounter, if you'll just ask the question, what am I believing about myself that's not true? Uh, Just an example, I was out walking uh, a few weeks ago, out walking in the morning and praying, and in preparation for this, I thought, I better do this if I'm going to ask people to do it. And it had been a while since I did, and I just asked the Father, what what am I believing about myself that's not true? And the word that came instantly, and it wasn't audible, the word that came to my mind instantly was failure. And it was accompanied by by images from my story. And how the enemy had kind of pulled the thread through all the stories and said, who are you? You're such an imposter. Who do you think you are? You're such a fail." Like that's the enemy constantly feeding me that. But by the Father revealing to me, you believe you're a failure and I don't see you that way. It gave me the opportunity to go, oh, oh my word, yeah, I, I do believe that. And so I confessed it. And we'll, we'll talk about the second part in a minute, but I asked the father immediately after. I said, Father, what do you, how do you see me? How do you see me? And it led to this beautiful moment. I'll tell you more about it in a second. But we have to practice it. This is something that you can do by yourself, but it's almost better done with someone else, someone you trust, a pastor, a friend, spouse. Um, it's something that you can do in silence, but I'll recommend you do it out loud, something in writing. Ask the father. Make a list. What are the things that I'm believing that aren't true? I'm going to give you one more example from my own story of how trauma um, dictates belief. Trauma um, is very eager to give us a label, give us something false to believe. So I was 10. Um, We grew up in Santiago, Chile, in the big city, 4 million people. And we lived in the suburbs, and I was in a Boy Scout troop. And we would travel 30 minutes to get to the this church downtown where the Boy Scout troop met. And uh, so it was 1985, I was 10 years old, no phone, no internet. Um, and I was in this Boy Scout troop and the troop meeting was over. It was evening, everybody started leaving, lights were getting turned off, doors were closed and I was left there alone. The person who was supposed to come get me wasn't there. And so I waited and I waited. You know, it's like being 10, do you remember? Do you remember being scared and the feeling, you're just heart- racing, and you start wondering, is anybody ever going to come get me? How do I get home? I have no idea how to get home. I don't know who to call. I don't know what to do. I spoke Spanish, but even so, how do you, how do you, get, how do you get home? 30-minute drive away. It got dark, standing there, and, and all, you know, noises started scaring me. I heard people coming, so I hid behind this bush. And I don't know how long it was. It felt like an eternity, but I just waited fear rising and mounting finally a car pulls up and it's my ride and I run and I jump into the car, into the floorboard and I just kind of melt into a puddle and I just start bawling my eyes out and when the person that was there to pick me up, and I, and I don't hold any I, I've for long since forgiven but the person who picked me up, when the, all I needed them to say was I'm so sorry are you okay Instead, what was said was, stop crying. Why are you crying? Why are you always so sensitive? Why are you always so emotional, Jason? Stop crying. And so I did for 25 years. I didn't realize it until 25 years later when someone was leading me through this very exercise that I'm telling you about. What are you believing about yourself that's not true? And I said, I'm too sensitive. And it took me back in time to that very moment. And I, in that moment when this friend was taking me through the process, I, I realized I've been believing this lie that I'm too sensitive. What I believe is a 10-year, old I didn't realize it at the moment, but what I started believing was who I was was not okay. I had to be someone else. I had to stuff down the emotion, stuff down the feelings. I had to be someone hard, and I had to be someone in control, and it served me pretty well as a kid, but it, it's not who I am. It's not who I was made to be, and so by identifying it and, and that person leading me through a prayer 25 years later saying, Father, I, I, want, I reject this as a lie. You've made me. Mind, body, soul, spirit, you've made me to be a feeling person, a person who can express emotion. And what, in the process, what what was revealed to me was, it's actually how God designed me to be, to be able to feel openly, be able to connect with people and draw emotion out of them. That was a life-changing experience for me, all because a friend said, what are you believing about yourself that's not true? Folks, it's, it's a game changer. And it ch- will change the trajectory of your life if you'll start to identify things about yourself that aren't true. So we start there. The second thing is we have to immerse ourselves. Oh, wait, before we move on, I did it last time too. We wanna read some statements together. Here's some examples of lies that you might believe, that might be believing. And so we're gonna re- be able on the screen, we're gonna read together um, out loud. So let's read this. I renounce the lie that I am rejected, unloved, dirty, or shameful, because in Christ, I am completely accepted. I renounce the lie that I am guilty, unprotected, alone, or abandoned, because in Christ, I am totally secure. I renounce the lie that I am worthless, inadequate, helpless, or hopeless, because in Christ, I am deeply significant. Again, you might be tempted to think today, those are just words. Man up, Jason. Jason. Those are just words. You don't need to say those things. But I'm telling you, if you don't identify what's false, you will live a half life. You will never live out what God intended for you. So we begin by renouncing, identifying and renouncing. The second is we immerse ourselves. And we're going to use the image of two forms of ID, okay? The first form of identification is the shared identity that all those in Christ have, So the moment you confess, I can't do this life on my own, and you accept God's grace, there are a whole lot of things in Scripture that are true about you, and we start there. We immerse ourselves in what's true. It's, It's the reason that we do VBS. It's the reason that we do children's church. It's the reason that we do camps. It's the reason that we sing worship songs. Part of it is to offer God worship, but part of it is for us to be reminded of who we are and what's true. So we have to immerse ourselves in this. And I'm going I'm to use a word that's going to turn a lot of you off. And I apologize, but I'm going to ask you to bear with me. But the Bible is full of truth. And I know I get it. A lot of you have tried. You've opened the Bible. You've tried to read it and study it. And it just, it's hard. It's written by all kinds of different authors and all kinds of different genres. It's in these different languages and talks about names and people that I don't understand. And I get it but I'm asking you to give me just, just this one thing. Just start with one phrase. One verse. A few years ago, I started using this Bible memory app. I'd love to tell you about it offline, um, but every morning I get up and it kind of gamifies it. I started with one verse, verse and just reviewed this one verse and then I started adding more. And now I have this list that I just go back to and daily reminding myself of what's true. It doesn't have to be hard. You just have to find a way to immerse yourself in it. I know a young man who came out of addiction and his sponsor told him, you have to immerse yourself in scripture, immerse yourself in what's true. And so he was doing food delivery at the time and he, he, he wrote out on uh, post-it notes, he wrote out scriptures and truths and he put them all over his dashboard so no matter where he went, he had truth right there. His stoplight, he'd look down and be reminded, oh, this is what's true. This is what's true. This is what's true. Who am I? Who am I? Who am You're gonna answer it somehow. And one leads to a life of brokenness and one leads to a life of fullness and redemption. Immerse ourselves in truth. We're gonna put some more. Nick did this a few weeks ago and it was awesome. We're gonna do a little bit of it again. We're gonna put some scriptures up on, or some phrases. And I want us to read these out loud again. I am God's child. I am Christ's friend. I have been justified. I am united with the Lord and I am one spirit with him. I have been bought with a price, I belong to God. I am a member of Christ's body, I am a saint. I have been adopted as God's child. I have direct access to God through the Holy Spirit. I have been redeemed and forgiven of all my sins. I am complete in Christ. You, again, you might think, oh, those are just words, I kind of already know that. But there's something intentional. You see it in the life of Jesus, our example. He knew what was true. And when Satan came after him and said, is it really true who you are, what did he answer with? Truth from Scripture. So you have to immerse yourself in it. And the goal is not for you to say, okay, I did this good thing, or here's the list of verses I memorized. The goal is for you to be able to stand in the face of anything and in any kind of conversation or relationship when someone accuses you or someone uh, is is coming against you or the enemy is accusing you, you can say, I'm a child of the Father. I'm a co-heir with Jesus of an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. I have the mind of Christ. I have a new heart with the law written on it. I am a temple or a vessel of the Spirit. There's no condemnation. There's no condemnation for me. I've been grafted in, adopted in. I'm the fragrance of Christ. I'm a minister of reconciliation. And the list goes on and on and on of all the things that are true about me. And when you know what's true, I don't need you to validate or affirm me. And that's not a prideful thing. I just don't need it because I know who I am and I can operate out of clarity about what's true about me. So that's The first form of ID is a shared sense of identity that we all have and it's something we need to remind each other of. When you catch a spouse or a child or a friend calling themselves stupid or saying something that's not true, it's one of our tasks as brothers and sisters to say, hang on a second, that's not true, this is what's true. We gotta know it, okay? The second is the unique form of identity, okay? We have to know our unique form of identity. Um, scripture says that, that, um, that the Father knows the number of hairs on your head. And for some preachers up here, it's pretty easy for God to know how many hairs are on their head. For some of us, you know, God has to work a little harder. All joking aside, the Father, knows, the Father knows you. It says you were knit together in your mother's womb. Acts 17 says that he placed you on purpose in a time and a place so that you would reach out and find him. He knows you. Let me, let me illustrate this. I have four kids, and if, I, if they were all here on stage with me, <clears throat> I wouldn't introduce you to child one, child two, child three, child four. Nice to meet you. Goodbye. Like, I, wouldn't intri- I would never introduce my kids like that, right? It's true. They're my children. But that's a shared sense of identity. What I would do is I would say, I want you to meet Jacob. Jacob is my firstborn, and he's six foot three, tall in stature, deep in heart. He's got the heart of a pastor, the heart of a shepherd. He nerds out over uh, apocalyptic TV shows and soccer, but he nerds out over commentaries. He loves he loves God's word. He's a great youth pastor. He loves his bride, he loves his son. Jacob is the most loyal person I know. He would do anything for those in his life. I love my son. That's my firstborn. And let me introduce you to Haven, my secondborn. Haven is my oldest daughter. And when she sings, it's literally the voice of an angel. It makes me closer to God when I hear her sing. And when she captures life, when she captures faces in her photos, black and white images, I see the world in a different way because of the beautiful way she captures lighting and smiles and expressions. And because of the journey she's been on, she understands grace and forgiveness in a way that I don't know that I ever will. And so she's making the world a better place by the way she responds to people when she's sinned against. That's my daughter, Haven. Do you see the difference between saying this is child one and child two, this is Jacob, and this is Haven, and then the other two, eh, we'll get to, I don't have time. (laughs) They're not here in this service, so I don't have to talk about them. But do you you see the difference between a generic sense of identity and the, the, the heart of a father for their child? The truth is the father knows you that way. And he wants to delight in you. He formed you. You uniquely reflect his glory like no one else can. No one else ever has. No one else ever will. He wants to delight in you. He wants to tell you how he sees you. I was walking with my wife this week sharing about what I was going to be talking about. And I asked her, I said, have you ever asked, the, asked God how he sees you? And she's like, no. I'm, I'm, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. So earlier I was telling you, I was walking and asked the Father, what am I believing about myself that's not true? Failure. I rejected it. I confessed it and rejected it. And I said, so deep breath, how do you see me? And the word he used to describe me just pulled me over. No one else, no one else, could have, no one else knows that name. No one else could have used that. I, in fact, out loud in the dark, I said, no way. And the, the word came back again. And he said, you invite people to the table, you take them on an adventure and and a journey, and they become more fully the characters I created. And he gave me this name. And I want that for you. Because when you're clear about what's true, and when you start removing all these labels, and you look in the mirror and you see this is the man, this is the woman, the father designed for this world, for this marriage, for this family, for this church, for this community. This is who I am, I can just be. I don't have to perform, I don't have to achieve, I don't have to do anything, just be who he made me to be. And when you're clear about identity, it leads to purpose. It leads to clarity about why you're here. Why you're working the job you're working, in. maybe you shouldn't be working that job. Why you're living where you're living, and maybe why you should, but it brings clarity. And I think that's what we're all after. A wholehearted identity that we can love people without needing any validation, Any affirmation. Ask him. Ask him. Too many of us have believed things that are false, and we put this image on the throne, and we say, "Thanks, God, but I'm just going to live out of this identity." When He longs to tell you who you are, ask Him. I'm going to show a video here. It's a 10-second video. I'm going to cue it up first, so it makes sense. This is a video of uh, my son Jacob praying a blessing over his son Phineas. And um, it's the same prayer that Jason closes out the sermon with every, every week. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face or his countenance towards you and give you peace. And so Jacob is praying this prayer over Phineas. It's what they do before they put him to bed every night. And I want you to watch Phineas's face as he's listening to his dad pray this blessing over him. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May his face turn towards you and give you peace. Amen. Oh, amen. Yeah. The fact that he's the most adorable creature ever, right? I, I love, I, listen, think about what's happening, okay? Think about what's happening. A father is speaking truth over his son. And he's saying, you are blessed, you are loved, you are protected, you are kept, you are safe. Do you know what the word amen means in Hebrew? It's true. Every time you say amen, it means it's true. May it be so. It's true. And so Phineas knows at the end of that prayer, every night, they both say amen. And so he's, he's ready to jump in. He can't speak. He can't even say mama or daddy. He can say amen. And, and, I, and I love that. And that's my prayer for you this week. Is that my, my prayer is that you would be bold enough that you would do, do, do what we talked about. Ask the Father, what am I believing in myself that's not true? and reject it. and then say how do you how do you see me and begin to immerse yourself in truth and that as he tells you and as you start to realize oh my gosh i've been living needing my wife's approval all the time and i do all these things to try i don't need to do that I've been trying to do this for my kids or for my work. I'm, I'm exhausting myself, like I did in Italy for 11 years trying to prove this guy wrong. I'm exhausting myself trying to do this thing and prove this thing. I don't need to do that anymore. That as the Father reveals and helps you understand what's true, they're like little Phineas, you would say, oh, amen. Amen, it's true. Thank you for joining us today. River City Church is all about experiencing and expressing God's love in our lives and community and we hope that you've been able to experience that today. As grateful as I am that you've spent this time listening in this morning, this podcast is no substitute for full participation in a local church. I love it when River City people listen to other pastors, but it is those who show up week after week, faithfully giving their support and time and resources that make all of this possible. If we can help you get connected to a local church, pray for you, or support you in any way, click the link in the description and let us know. If you'd like to financially support the ministry of River City, click the Give link on our website in the description. Don't forget to subscribe, and don't forget to share this with your friends. Thanks so much for listening. May the Lord bless and keep you in all grace and